Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm recording this on Sunday, August 25th. And wow, even though it is cloudy and rainy today, I am seeing a difference in the light in the morning. And um, part of me is kind of thrilled because <laughs> by this time of year, by this time of the summer, I'm kind of getting tired and looking forward to fall and winter to be forced to stay inside a bit. Um, but then as a bee friend and I were talking the other day about how we needed some rainy weather so that we would get things done inside the house for a change. And at the same time, a stretch of rainy, chilly weather will put us in a funk and we don't get much done. So it's devil in deep blue sea there. But before I jump into today's topic, which is uh, some talk about winter prep, which is really important. I So important that I, I wrote some notes. We'll see how much I uh, follow them. But before I get to that, where I'll be talking about fat bodies, this cool tool you can use, and um, small hive beetle traps, and getting your bees fed up and all that. Before I get there, I want to say thank you to every single one of you who has taken the time to write sweet notes and good reviews on the iTunes um, Apple Podcasts and also on the Facebook page, Five Apple Farm. And it really means a lot to me. It cheers me up <laughs> on days when I'm n- not cheered. And then um, also it helps other people find the show, which I just love it when people find the show. And if you're brand new to the show, you might want to go back to some of the first few episodes and kind of get a, a vibe for what's going on here in this podcast. And the rest of you who've been with me along the way, I can't thank you enough because it is your encouragement that has kept me uh, had kept me studying for the journeyman level test in the North Carolina Master Beekeepers process. And I am delighted to tell you that I got the call. I passed the journeyman level test, practical and the written. And now all I have to do is turn in my uh, public service credits and to get my paper. <laughs> so I'm really thrilled. It's been a really fun process and uh, yes I plan to just keep on plowing and and go for a master beekeeper not right away um, but it was pretty funny right after the test before I knew I got up that morning and I had a little free time before work. And it was so funny because I'm like wow wh- what do I do because I had just jumped on the books and tried to cram in a little study in that last few weeks before the test and um, one key, if you are studying for something, a friend of mine who, um, I can't say her name, but passed the um, master's level at this last conference, I'll announce that later, um, she brought flashcards that she had made for her study. And I had never been a flashcard user, I just never had the patience to make them, but I tell you, having a a pack of flashcards fall into your hand was a beautiful thing because what I discovered and I wish I'd known this back in school was how handy it is that you can go through the flashcards and everything that you've really got down pat you can set aside and then you can concentrate on the stuff that you don't know which that was very handy so thank you every one of you you've been an incredible support um, in that process so many of you sent notes and messages that last week before my test about to uh, uh, just wishing me luck and encouraging me and it it meant so very much so thank you for that all right winter prep it's hard to believe that um, that I'm 
it's hard to believe that it's that it's almost here and depending on where you are of course this can be wildly different but in the mountains of western north carolina um, august and september are critical last call times um, august is kind of last call for a lot of um, mite management methods um, and august and september are last call for a lot of uh, good feeding options which you definitely you know want your bees to go in with um, plenty of honey even if they have made that honey from sugar water even if it's strictly bee honey um, it is better it's so much better to feed them even though yes it's it's artificial but to give them the food to have a chance uh, to get through the winter so that you will have bees with which to make bees and divide bees and um, you know maybe buy queens from excellent genetic breeders and just have all these options in the spring that you won't have if your bees don't make it so if you have if you if you're hesitant about feeding your bees from an artificial intervention point of view please write me on the Facebook page and just let's have a conversation because I I think it's really sad um, to let bees starve when that is something very manageable when it does not affect how um, you know it does not affect their genetics and that the genetics are what are the survivor tendencies so I would just uh, ask that you consider that and if you'd like to have a conversation I'd be glad to just write me on the Facebook page so, like I said, August and September, you have these windows of opportunity. And with most things in beekeeping, the windows, the timing is pretty unforgiving. Um, I've heard it said in beekeeping, and I found this to be true, you know, there may be a hundred methods to do any given procedure in um, beekeeping, from different types of hives to, you know, just different styles of management. But what doesn't change is the window of opportunity to do things seasonally in whatever um, microclimate is yours and whatever type of um, ecosystem you have on. I was having a conversation um, in a Facebook beekeeping group and I showed a little pollen feeder which I'm going to talk about in a minute and a guy from Wyoming wrote and said that would last about three minutes in Wyoming and I well he just said it lasts about three minutes and I wrote back and said you must be in a windy area out west and he he was in Wyoming and he sent me a picture of what they called a, a Wyoming um, wind speed calculator and it was a heavy piece of chain on a uh, a pipe and it had the angle and how fast the wind was blowing which is very funny we have huge wind here in the mountains, but only in the winter. Um, we sure could use some wind in the summer, but no, it gets it gets still and very humid. It still tends it's cooler than everywhere else around here, but um, the the humidity holds that pollen in place. Um, so again, there are windows that have to be respected because if you miss the window, then you have to go to Plan B, and a lot of times that is not uh, as good the particular windows other than the mite management depending on however you do that is for feeding liquid feed um, because once the uh, syrup is below a certain temperature they can't take it, it their insects are quote-unquote cold-blooded so that would make them incapacitated if they took cold 
syrup. And it's interesting. I've I've seen the numbers for people who are inclined to do this of the temperature of the syrup that they've checked. Um, if it's one of the feeders that are is contained within a hive, then it doesn't warm up until, I mean, at best, um, once your temps are below a certain point, it, it never gets to a temperature that they can use it. I know some beekeepers get around this by using um, things on top of the hive, like uh, mason jars on a small basis or then the big plastic bucket feeders for the on the large basis. And those warm up, which can... Um, not so much with a mason jar and glass, but with the plastic feeders, you have to watch out because if it's in direct sun, it can warm up enough to shoot out the syrup, which, um, as we've discussed recently, can cause robbing problems. But whatever method you use, and there are many, um, getting your bees up to weight is really important. The thing I learned the hard way is a lot of times when I harvested um honey the bees felt rock heavy I was like these guys are set up you know I'm not even going to have to feed them at all and some some years that's true in some years they're so rock heavy that I'm concerned that there's even enough space in there for the queen to lay which is a whole other issue we'll talk about in a minute but other years the you know they're they're rock heavy this time of year and then if it's a really uh, bad dearth which um, I'm wondering if we're kind of having one because the bees are really active on the pollen feeders, which they don't mess with the pollen feeders here if there's anything better out there blooming. So I'm a little concerned about what's going on with our uh, pollen supply. So I want to talk about pollen and one-to-one -one syrup in the late summer and fall. Now, as most of you know, in the fall, when you're trying to put weight on the hives, you want to use a heavy syrup, like a, you know two parts sugar to one part water. Some people do in he even heavier, but it's um, I think it's very difficult to get to mix. Um, I don't have that much trouble with uh, with two to one. I believe Michael Bush uses a five to three, which I don't understand the ratios enough, but um, that's kind of midway between the two. But um, so the general knowledge is that if you are trying to add weight to get them through the winter, you use the heavy syrup. On the other hand, if you're trying to mimic a flow, and the flow or the perception of a flow on the part of the bees is what is going to keep your queen laying. It's going to keep her active. Um, some races of bees are very uh, sensitive to what is going on with the flow. For example, the Carniolans will really, um, once there's a dearth, that queen will reduce that brood nest to I mean, it's amazing. I can reduce it to a palm size. And sometimes that's not a problem, depending on what they've got going on in there. But at other times, it is a problem. For example, in some of these little nukes that we've all made and that we're going to try to overwinter, you need a certain population size to get through the winter. And, and there is just a base. It depends entirely on, well, a lot of things, as you know, but uh, mostly on your winters, how cold they get, and not just how cold they get. Because I was having a conversation with a beekeeper um, about the difference in the types of cold. And got horse there. I had to go get some, some water and a fresh cup of hot black coffee, which is just tastes so much better when it's rainy, misty outside. But about these different types of cold, the types of... Well, for example, um, one of the Vermont beekeepers who gave a 
uh, talk in our area, was just shocked that we down in North Carolina would consider wrapping our hives in some fashion because he's like, are you kidding? You know, our hives go through Vermont um, winters without wrapping. And I mean, wrapping is, there's pros and cons to it, but what is really different is the type of cold. Like up in Vermont, y'all get a real solid winter. It becomes winter, it stays winter, and then it ends winter. Down here in the mid-Atlantic states, at least, um, and this was true when I lived in the Ozarks also, it would be cold winter. I mean, what's cold to us, um, zone six-ish, uh, it would be cold winter for a while, and then suddenly you have a 60-something degree day, and there's bees flying around everywhere looking for something. Of course, there's nothing out there. Um, and then they have to go back in there. And then, you know, 24 hours later, the temp drops down to zero with a wind chill of 15 below and that has happened here in the mountains um and actually back in the Ozarks too um that that up and down cold is a whole different set of problems than just a solid cold like they have up in the true north or the not no cold to mention that you have uh down south but in all those places for example, the humidity varies, which really alters the cold. So if you're in a dry climate and it's cold, then to the best of my knowledge, the, the main thing is that you have that the size of the cluster is simply big enough to go through the winter um, with the die off that inevitably happens through the winter. And basically in that late winter, you still haven't have enough bees to keep them warm. Um, but in a humid climate like ours here in western North Carolina uh, and and a lot of the mid-Atlantic in the east um, you know you have the moisture problem because a lot of our winter is not quite cold enough to make the air dry but it's right in that cold enough to kill a bee but also soaking wet air and it creates the um, if you don't have top ventilation which is is critical um, if you're doing if you're lessening your moisture via ventilation, um, then you can get the whole wet frozen bees and that will kill them very, very quickly. I had a terrible thing happen one winter. I had a hive that was a pretty big hive, um, robustly healthy, really full. They had, um, I'd been keeping an eye on them. In fact, I'd been checking their stores because I was worried there were so many bees they weren't going to have enough uh, food to get through the winter. So I checked them and I guess in messing around I accidentally pushed the lid too far forward and closed the little ventilation port that I had for them. And we had some bitter cold and when I went out to check the bees that hive had died like suddenly because they had been you know robust uh, I don't know two days three days before and then they were all dead on the bottom board it was like inches deep of bees I'd never seen anything like it and they had they had honey because they can also die like that if they run out of food um, because as you know the bees will share the honey down to the last drop so they all die at once if it's if it's starvation as opposed to kind of uh, generally sort of petering out uh, if it's if it's mite or illness, then they'll they'll tend to, at least in my experience, kind of peter out, get smaller and smaller, and then finally the cold gets them because they've they've passed that point of too small a cluster to get through. But this hive, I 
feel pretty sure I killed with my own two hands because I cut off their ventilation. There's so much humidity, so probably the combination of the condensation uh, dripping on them and a frigid cold night and it killed them all dead. It was very sad. That was one in my long list of beekeeper error, which as you go through the years, you're going to have that and you just have to pick yourself up and go on because I think you'll do more more good with bee even if you've killed some bees you will do more good with bees if you just keep on get better and better every year and then you will actually turn the corner and become a help to bees and be making more bees as opposed to knocking off your hives which I felt like I did now the high humidity in some places and this is something I've meant to try I try a variation on it and that's the quilt box the quilt box is some uh, variation of a of a porous top uh, uh, on the inside the like a porous inner cover and by that I mean I think people use screen people may use uh, burlap over the top but that whatever that is it allows moisture to go in it and inside there is some type of stuffing that absorbs moisture and um, so look up quilt box and you'll see 10 different ways to do this not only does that layer of stuffing of whatever absorbent material you have, um, not only does it provide some top insulation, uh, and a good type of top insulation that's not keeping moisture in, but rather you know, gradually absorbing that moisture, but that barrier, and the construction folks will know the word for this, I'm not sure... <laughs> there's a whole the whole thing of you know how you have to put the insulation in a certain direction because you want it to drip if there's any dripping which you don't want but you want it to drip in a certain direction well in a beehive you want that warm layer between your inner bees and your outer cover because that outer cover is usually often metal or whatever it is it's going to get the coldest that's going to cause condensation on the inside which will drip on the bees so that thick layer of something fluffy and absorbent that you can also clean out and replace if you need. And as I saw one person online talk about their surprise with using a quilt box was you would think that the moisture, like when you, like let's say you replace the, the bag of uh, wood chips or something that you're using or shavings, not really chips, but shavings, um, it, will be, it will be wet on the top, not the bottom, which is just counterintuitive because the moisture you're trying to manage is, is coming from the bee's exhalation, I think mostly, but... Um, Strangely enough, it's the condensation that drips from the top of that inner cover that not only could damage your bees, but will will wet that um, quilt, which is the point of it. And so um, I've used variations on this. I have a wintering cover, which is just really, it's an inner cover that has um, edges on it about two inches tall. Brushy Mountain used to sell it, and I just happen to have a handful of them, and I really like them. They provide a little bit of clustering space underneath the top lid, um, and also the, it, that provides room if you're doing any type of feeding. Um, I don't use fondant, but I use a hard sugar patty. Uh, it's a no-cook sugar patty that I got from Lori out in uh, Washington State, which I will share with you later. Um, and anyway, you this inner that two inches or so is the perfect size to put a block, a sugar block or sugar brick. Um, on them and then the quilt would go above that and so what I've not having a quilt made because obviously I have lots of things it's on my long list of things I haven't gotten around to yet um, that would be above it and would create that warm space for them to eat on their sugar block the sugar block absorbs some water 
which is what allows them to eat it. And then the uh, quilt box, or in my case, uh, I have just taken old pillowcases th that, or pillowcases from the um, thrift store and stuff them with uh, pine shavings and kind of lay it in there. I mean, you could have loose pine shavings, but you don't want, whatever it is, you don't want it falling down on the bees. Also, if they can touch it, they will try to clean it up or coat it with propolis. You don't want to make that extra work for them, in my opinion. So um, some type of bag, like a old pillowcase or burlap, bag um, that can contain those shavings make it super easy to just pull them all out at once not only to look down in your hive if you need to if you've got that screen on the inner cover which is nice because you can glance down see exactly if your bees are all the way up to the top um, but anyway look up quilt boxes I think they're pretty interesting if you're in a wet humid climate um, I think they are very important. If you're in a cold, dry climate, probably it's just the top insulation that might be helpful um, to you. Now, this whole thing I've mentioned, and so, okay, I'm already totally off my notes, guys, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to check off what I've talked about, and I'll aspire to cover it in the next podcast. But insulation is an interesting issue because there are several beekeepers that I um, follow on YouTube one is uh, Canadian and insulation makes a lot of sense if you're trying to overwinter nucleus colonies, which he successfully does. I think his name is a Aiden Quinney. Um, I've seen some of his presentations. I really like a lot of his philosophy. But anyway, so if you're overwintering small colonies, then insulation of some type, whether the body of another hive or insulation or overwintering in the shed is going to be important. But I ran across a, a, a little blip in a presentation. I can't remember where it was. It was from Europe, and it was a beekeeper very focused on natural methods who said, it, considering where bees came from, which is a much warmer environment than most of North America, that clustering, even it's a survival mechanism, a, you know, kind of akin to our shivering, but that doesn't mean that it's a, great thing for the bees per se it doesn't you know it it is a survival mechanism but spending their time in a hard cluster is a, a certain type of stress and so this person was talking about if if we insulate our hives you know thoughtfully to account for moisture so that it's more akin to the r value of a natural tree which is when where they would most likely be located uh, if they're feral here would be helpful and I, I've just seen a lot of I feel like my hives are under less stress when I put some insulation around them I just use the uh, rigid foam stuff and I kind of combination duct tape it and tie it on there it's not real elegant but um, but it's it's work for me I just put it on the three sides that are not facing the sun so the front of my hives uh, face south, southeast kind of, and um, and so I put the foam on the three sides that are not the front, and that's to allow, in my mind, I haven't checked the numbers, but that's in my mind to allow the sun to warm up the inside of the hive uh, during the day. The whole thing that I had been warned about of, oh, it'll get too warm and they'll move around and use more honey. I haven't found that personally to be true. What I have found is the ability, if it if it's a day where without that insulation, they could not move, but with that insulation, it warms up enough in there for them to move around, 
then I quit having that whole thing of where, um, you know, they would starve because they couldn't move over to the honey. And so I found it helpful. I'll talk more about that. Maybe I can actually find some, um, some facts. <laughs> it's so hard to find, you know, it, nothing like trying to find a documented fact in beekeeping will bring your attention to the fact that there's a huge amount of research that's not to be done and so much of what people just swear by is is anecdotal and it's from their yard and it's worked great for them but there's nothing like getting to know a bunch of different beekeepers and reading even more beekeepers to let you know so many things that might work in my yard might not work in yours for maybe for factors that I can I that we could identify and maybe we could not identify them we don't know okay let me go back to my notes for a second here so in late summer and fall if you are trying to mimic a flow to keep your queen raising brood and this would be a case of where you have a hive that's too small at this point um, that you need you know they need to be bigger to go into winter uh, you want to keep that queen laying so the factors in that are to mimic a flow which is um, one-to-one feed is very useful that's a thin syrup um, it's useful. It has its drawbacks because it's not going to be adding weight. Basically, you want to feed them. Again, what I've talked about on earlier podcasts, the idea of trickle feeding, you know, not dumping them gallons at a time, but rather kind of just eking it out to them every day so that it it uh, gives the queen the feeling that there are the signals, I should say the feeling, but the signals that there's nectar coming in. And so she feels free to, <laughs> there I go again. Um, well, she, then she keeps laying. I'm just going to use, you You know, I know better, but I'm going to just use what I say because <laughs> it's too hard to, to go back and think of the exact correct term, even though that was part of the journeyman as I'm supposed to start using the exact right terminology but you're going to hear me mess up a lot so so um, with this one-to-one syrup you're trying to grow that population the other part of that equation is they need a pollen flow and this brings me to pollen feeders Um, pollen feeders are great in my opinion in the and I'm talking about the loose pollen feeders that's uh, the pollen substitute that they can feed on if they want and it's not in their hive so it's not going to attract pests like the pollen patties can. Um, I like it too as a kind of signal of what's going on out there in the world. I have a couple of small pollen feeders, one in each of the um, hive areas here at the farm. One I just put on the Facebook page and it's the little bluebird feeder that I put into service as a pollen feeder. And um, it's really fun because if there's a good pollen flow out there, they will abandon that feeder instantly, like from one day to the next. It'll be packed with bees, then there's no bees. And that lets me know something natural is blooming out there because they strongly prefer that. And I am sure it is much, much better for them than the pollen substitute, which is a substitute. But I've also seen that to keep queens laying, to keep them producing brood in these little late when I mean late summer nukes that I've made, uh, keeping up the uh, one-to-one syrup and keeping up the pollen availability at their option really makes a difference in um, how much brood the queen produces because most of my bees are, I think, pretty heavily um, carniolan uh, based on well based on some queens I've bought so the other thing to watch out for in late summer and I wish I knew why um, but my bees have a bad habit of of getting in the mood to supersede your 
in the late summer, which is not the best time. And, and by that, I actually should say early fall. It's really not the best time to do it. Um, my hives already have thrown out the overwhelming majority of drones. When I look at a hive now, I'll see like a drone here and a drone there, but very rare drones. They've already ditched the guys, poor fellas. And um, so it's not, it's not a great time to get a queen mated, but what I have found, this is yet another use for having accidentally made too many nukes and have them stacked around your yard trying to figure out what to do with them because I've run into colonies already. I go in there, they have um, superseded their queen or they're starting to or the queen is gone for whatever reason. Maybe she died, I don't know, but they're making a new one and it's not a good time for them. So um, once I've really taken some precautions to make sure there's no queen in there and no virgin in the process because they will uh, you know kill the new queen but um, I combine them with one of my random little nucleuses I tend to combine pick a smaller nucleus a later nucleus um, because I'm wanting to you know do more experiments with overwintering of the more medium-sized nucleus so if I've got a little one that doesn't have much chance of getting to a size to be able to winter outdoors um, I will use those as my combining nucleus and if you've ever had a hive go queenless this time of year, it's virtually impossible to find a queen. Um, you know, you can quickly get, the, the hive can quickly dwindle so that there's no saving it, and then you have to combine it. So this is yet another reason to have some, some extra nukes sitting around. So that's my spiel on um, keeping up the pollen and the one-to-one -one feed if you're trying to grow brood. If you are trying to add weight, Obviously, you're going to use the heavier syrup, probably the two to one, um, and that's the kind that you can feed in quantity because, in fact, you want to. If a hive is way too light, then you're going to need to feed in quantity kind of all at once because they need to get that in the cells and then be able to cap it. If they, if they don't have time to cap it, then it's going to be a whole hive full of um, wet, open nectar, which, as you know, is being hygroscopic that's it's going to absorb moisture out of the air possibly ferment and either way create a lot more moisture in the hive um, so that's just a bad thing so you want them to be able to get it capped and to do that it basically they, they need to load it in about now at least here and to give them time to cap it if they you know get to where it's too chilly to do um, uh, liquid feed in time for them to cap it, then you're going to have to switch probably to the more solid uh, forms of sugar, the uh, fondant, fondant, I'm not sure how you say that, or um, the sugar blocks that, that I'm fond of. So watch out for supersedure, and at this time of the year, in my opinion, most places here in the, the whole zone 6 area, um, it's probably a little bit too late to get a queen well mated. I should amend that. I'm not sure about the whole zone six, but zone six at 3,000 feet, it's too late to get a queen mated. That I can say for sure. And um, by looking in your hives to see how many drones you have about, you can take a reading on if your queen has a good chance. Okay, so since I've gone so far off my notes, I'm going to bring it to a close here. Um, I, I'm going to close on this tip that I got. I was uh, Ruby of Valhalla farms out in Oregon. She has a certified naturally grown farm and apiary and as you guys know I love certified naturally grown 
in my opinion. It is so much more meaningful, and and I will say it's more demanding than um, organic certification because it has so much more to do with um, what the uh, what the beekeeper does and how the beekeeper is managing the bees for their health. So if you're interested in that, if you sell honey like at a farmer's market, I think that certified naturally grown is a great way. I mean, you know, I can sell all the honey I can produce um, without being certified naturally grown. But what I find it does is people go, oh, what is this certified naturally grown? And there's my perfect opportunity to tell them all about how um, it's important to ask beekeepers if, if this type of thing matters to you. Then it's important to ask the beekeeper, how do they keep their bees? Do they move their bees around? Are the bees kept locally? Um, are they, uh, you know, what type of uh, chemicals do, are used in the hive? It's a great way just to get a conversation going because people don't know what certified naturally grown is. And I will say, generally speaking, honey buyers are pretty oblivious that that beekeeper management varies. I mean, if you're in some of the very, um, you know, well, the foodie areas, then yeah, they're going to be all over that. But in most areas, people just don't know much about where, about the specifics of, of honey. And if you are carefully managing your apiary to keep them healthy and to put the bees needs first, that's not their need. That's their needs in EEDS, not their cute little knees, <laughs> but um, which they don't actually have, right? then that certification can be a, um, a really great conversation starter. But back to Ruby, what she mentioned on her Facebook page was that she uses push pins um, to mark her hives and indicate what's going on in there. And I thought that was really wonderful. Everybody has, you know, a drawer with some push pins in it somewhere. Now, as you guys know, I use thumbtacks for all manner of things in the yard, but these are the sticky uppy colored uh, push pins. They're so handy for marking, okay, recheck this one, or this one has a frame feeder, so remember to feed it, or look for this queen. I've seen other marking things. A lot of the commercial guys use bricks in various, so if it's the bricks sitting up on its end, it means one thing. If it's on its side, it means one thing. It's um, of how to uh, just know what's going on in each hive. And then another method I've heard is flagging tape. This one fellow had a green and red flagging tape and if the green was on there then it had been checked and it was good if the red was on there it needed something and if he had red and green then it needed a red check so that's a pretty simple method but whatever your method if you have several to many hives um, it's it's handy to have it marked right there in the bee yard because sometimes I I don't walk over to my clipboard and make actual notes and then I get out there and go oh man I, I, I forgot that because I'm very forgetful and um so some type of outer marking. I have, since I had a recent disaster with uh, forgetting to put frames in a super. Can you, anyway, that's just too embarrassing to, but anyway, after a disaster with that, uh, m m leading to a full box full of wild comb packed with honey and a, an entire surgical procedure to get that off there. Um, now I have a rule that if there are frames missing or any open space that is not accounted for, then I do have pieces of flagging tape in my yard that I can um, duct tape on there. And if I don't have a piece of flagging tape, I can duct tape one, one of my used purple gloves on there, the latex glove, non-latex that I use to 
um, I, I can do something that is really obvious that there is a frame missing in that hive. So, so thanks Ruby for that very neat and elegant way of coding with push pins versus an old used glove taped to the lid. <laughs> but whatever it takes, um, keep up with what's going on in your hives. Thank you so much. I feel like I should, like the car talk guys say, well, you've wasted another perfectly good half hour. But I hope you don't feel like it's a waste. I um, hope that there's some tip in every podcast that you can use to make your beekeeping skills a little better. Um, there may be things you disagree with, but just, you know, leave those behind. If it's thought provoking, then think on it. But um, I just appreciate all of you. I hope you have a wonderful week getting your bees ready for whatever is coming up next in your particular climate. As you know, I love to hear what's going on in your bee yards, in your various climates, both in the United States and in, in other countries. And I would just welcome you dropping by the Facebook page, Five Apple Farm, Bees, Honey, and More, um, and, and leave me a message. That would be a delight. One day I'll have a website and can tell you to go to that website and send a message. But for now, um, it's just email blueridge714 at gmail.com or the Facebook page. Have a great week. I'm cheering you all on in your beekeeping. And I hope that everything goes well.